0: to the Teaching Value in Healthcare Learning Network. Join us to hear leaders in the field share practical and tangible advice about how to teach and deliver high-value care. With national concerns about rising health care costs, as well as overuse and misuse of medical care, Costs of Care, in partnership with the ABIM Foundation, hosts an open forum to discuss ways to initiate, implement, and sustain Feasible innovations in value at your institutions. I'm Fumiko Chino, the Teaching Value and Healthcare Learning Network Fellow for Costs of Care, and I'll be moderating today's webinar on a, the Advanced Care Planning Project at UC Duke University. Uh, Dr. Adelia um, Kemp and Dr. Jared Lowe, um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Do you mind just um, Giving it just a little bit of background about each of you and how you came to work on the project today. Yeah. Um, Well again, we're very excited to be here. So my name is Jared Lowe. I was a resident in internal medicine at Duke University. And I've now moved into a role of being a fellow in Hospice Applied Medicine also at Duke. And uh, during that time I had the fortune of meeting Azalia, who got me wrapped up in this project. And I, I'm Adelia Kim, um, I am an assistant professor uh, for general internal medicine here at uh, Duke. I work at a clinical clinic, like our primary safety net clinic for the new health system. Uh, I am also medical director for Applied Health Data Science Strategy uh, for Duke Forge, which is our data science uh, entity as well as accelerator. Um, and my job is, has been around kind of what it's say all the strategy for uh, high-value care. Uh, the advanced care planning pilot was funded by the Duke Institute for Health Innovation uh, as a demonstration project of what could be possible uh, in the advanced care planning uh, space, specifically about a, a workflow for the Duke Health Patient Clinic where I currently work. So we're here to talk about the advanced care uh, planning project, and um, I wanted to take a, a big picture step back and kind of ask you um, what is the real scope of the problem? Why was this project necessary? Why is advanced care planning part of high value care? So, I think one of the things we've both seen in training was that these kind of bigger picture conversations about what does medical care actually mean for patient's life and what does that mean for their life moving forward in the years to come, those conversations just really don't happen. And so, that was something I saw in my own practice actually, that actually got me interested in going into palliative care and pursuing this fellowship. But even more so, we know from various studies that have been done across the nation. When they survey large groups of patients, many patients want to talk to their providers about what their wishes for care would be if they were ever seriously ill, but it's like a
1: staggeringly small amount that actually have those conversations. And I think some of the
0: best data we have is from 2017, they looked at like 800,000 patients enrolled in studies across the US, and not only about a third had completed any form of events, events directive, whether that's a long term attorney or a living will. And so we know that only a minority of patients are actually being engaged in ACP. And why does this matter in terms of cost? Okay. Uh, I think uh, there's sufficient data that's out there that is accepted across uh, uh, across the healthcare system that 25% of our spend, at least for Medicare beneficiaries, is having that last year of life. And I think all of us um, if we put our training hats on can um,
1: visualize
0: and visually feel those moments that we've taken care of. patients uh, We could have seen a different pathway where we uh, could it provide a care that's more important, potentially with their wishes upstream, if you had had a chance to ask them. Um, and so I think putting those in the lens of what is actually patient and family centered, uh, with the understanding that uh, there's a, a lot of cost, uh, associated with don't want to care at yeah, I love that your project really shifted the focus from kind of at the bedside in the hospital and at the ICU, where maybe passions and tensions are high, um, back to a more controlled environment where conversations can really ha- happen comfortably, and that gives much more power to patients, but also is is an incredible value to the healthcare system and to patients. Um, from there, um, from my own research, I know that... Um, that a lot of, for example, cancer patients, up to 90% of them say that they want to die at home, but that um, a quarter of them die in the hospital, and for certain populations, it's up to half of them. So you know, I think that your project has been um, a, a fantastic way of moving this idea forward of that patient-centered care can be really high-value care. Um, yeah, I think we, we had seen that and wanted to really focus on the upstream portion. So before patients are in crisis, before they're in the ICU and ventilated, they can't tell us. How do we engage them when they're out of time? Like you said? And I think that it also highlights the appropriate use of care because if we're spending um, all these this this time in the hospital on ICU beds and hospital beds on um, on some patients at the end of their life and not providing them a lot of benefit, maybe there could be appropriate reallocation of those those uh, resources yeah. um, for better situations. Um, with that in mind, can you give me kind of a brief overview of the advanced care planning project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, if I, I We can give you a, the diagram to help kind of talk through what we'll uh, we we'll describe as a five step approach. Um, so, this five step being first to identify patients, and we can talk about how we went about doing that, how um, others might, uh, how to engage patients, uh, the advanced care planning encounter, uh, how to document or uh, use technology meaningfully for documentation, as well as tools to make that data accessible across care settings. Um, and so, the first around identification. Um, we came up with what we feel is very simple and intuitive, uh, but acceptable data model that used uh, age greater than 70, do more of a, a, of a subset of uh, medical comorbidities, and whether or not you've been in the hospital during the last two years as a scoring system um, for patients. Patients that were scored uh, for any of those uh, reasons got at one point, and those who had um, uh, two or higher were prioritized in our outreach. Um, we then uh, used patient navigators that were uh, two individuals that didn't actually have any formal uh, medical training, but had a background in social work. And um, Given the population that we were asking them to reach out to, we actually found that their um, Advanced communication skills, uh, ability to problem solve, and also also understanding uh, the, the kind of nuances of the dynamics of family and other social drivers. Uh, utilization was actually really really important in um, how they both reach out to patients and engage them in the clinic setting for the ACP encounter. Um, and so they actually cold call patients, um, and we uh, perhaps a little unscientifically, um, but with more of a lens of, um, of of a kind of consumer engagement and. Um, perspective um trying to figure out what were the words that they used that were uh, most um successful at converting that patient to say yes that would come in with my family appointment and we went ahead and um uh, documented that script for them to use uh, over and over again. So there was an archive of basically the language that were that was more effective. Um, and it's interesting because uh, you know some of our uh, suspicions were true that the therapeutic relationship between uh, myself and my patient, the primary care doctor, was really important. But that it was possible for someone, a caring person, to reach out on behalf of the primary care doctor, say, "Hey, Dr. Kim's worried about you," and you know, she thought this conversation would be helpful to want to come in with your family, and um, we can go through the numbers later, but we actually found that um, patients like, no, oh, that sounds like a reasonable thing. I would, lo- I would like to. I would love with you, a strong word, but I'm sure uh, it was no one has really had ever asked, um, and I should, I, you know, in the background with that, I should also say that we did work with our patient advisory counselor here at Duke um, to kind of talk through what is a language that would be acceptable, uh, what, are they, uh, what are the, I guess, words that could be triggers that would have an uh, undue emotional response that, as opposed to being productive with getting that patient to the third. So that work was done kind of before we embarked on this patient outreach. Um, the ACP encounter itself happened in clinic, and our navigators were pretty savvy to realize that hey, it's really hard for patients to get to clinic, but while they're here, they're much more amenable to having those conversations. So we did the ACP encounter, um, we had higher rates of successful speed back on ACP even then and they engage with patients on site. Uh, We used a note template that had a scripted questions, again, getting our tell us. what works What doesn't work, what are the questions that trigger a great answer, and what are the ones where, whether it's for health literacy reasons or emotional reasons, it's not the right words to use. And so we went ahead and iterated on that and baked um, it into the actual templates that we're using. Um, and then lastly, the pilot involved using the ACP Activity PR and ethics institution, as I'm sure many of you are as well, for better or worse um, and uh, but just knowing that the ACP to be uh, as it was launched in the latest uh, well, now two versions of EPIC was one way to be able to provide the data across all the care settings that there was an the ambulatory uh, EPIC encounter or on the evaluation. um and so uh, our focus was on both an ACP encounter note and the healthcare power attorney form being completed which for our state is challenging because it includes a notary as well um, and so I, I will let Jared kind of provide more yeah, well, details. Just thinking about that, so the target for these encounters was focusing on deciding that surgery decision maker. Because I think when we talk about advanced care planning, it means a lot of things. And oftentimes, folks just think of the advanced directive, which can be so long and detailed. And it's hard for patients to decide in advance, do I want a G2, do I want dialysis, things like that they've never thought about, don't have education on necessarily. And so the surgery decision maker is really the most important thing of who do you trust and who would you want to provide your providers to go to? And that's where we made that focus. Yeah. I think that a lot of, um, in terms of when we think about high utilization at the end of life and potentially fetal care is because there is not necessarily a clear decision maker that's been identified. And then that person doesn't necessarily, um, if they are identified, don't necessarily know um, their loved one's wishes. And I think the framework that y'all have established um, uh, in the primary care planning allows those conversations to happen at home. Well, which is so great um, because it, it starts the idea in someone's head, but but the additional work does happen at home. So we've identified the, the key decision maker, and then again, given them kind of a potential framework to think about what they want. At the end of the um, yeah, that's a great point, Ara, after the uh, after visit summary um, included, we had like a we have a doc page that said, "Okay, now that we've done X, Y, and Z e today, um, here are other questions." to bring home to your decision maker and then we actually have this uh, card which uh, is a step one through five and our attempt was to say you know, check off the things we went through but a big part of that is two things one let's make sure you have that conversation with that service maker now that we've got to out who that person is and then um number five number, five, number six is uh, what questions do you have for your doctors i think that's the other kind of conversation that needs to get um pushed forward as a result of this and some type of data, then these aren't static conversations that they have to evolve over time. Just to take a step back, I do, did love the fact that you use data science to help create the list of people who would have the most impact from this conversation, which is patients with potential multiple chronic communities because we know that those patients are the ones that have the highest utilization. I found one study that showed that they were using 57,000 um, dollars per year you know, for healthcare expenses. And so, um, Many that that represents a big opportunity in terms of improving their quality of life and quality of care and value in those care, which is um, all wrapped in. Um, well, I, I, as we're thinking about costs, I think data and analytics is such a big hot topic right now, and there's so much money that can be spent on that. Um, and the ways of how do you use these sophisticated methods to identify all the right patients? And like as Dr. Kim mentioned at the beginning, we had a small amount of pilot grant them, and so it was really just choosing models. model that. System. And as part of the implementation, while we didn't have a lot of sophisticated data to show us the exact mortality of these patients, we had a validation uh, exercise where we took all the providers who were going to be involved in the program, ran the model against their panels of patients, and then provided that to them, and then found out how much they agreed with us that this would, yes, be an appropriate person to engage in ACP. Because the worst case scenario, one of them for us, was sending a patient to engage in ACP and then have a PCB be like, Hold up! That person is not appropriate at all, and then we lose all buy-in from that the practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it is interesting, though, the fascination of, um, of yeah. You know, there's always going to be a better model. It's going to be better in prediction, and um, and the, the ability to also show kind of savings that uh, at end of life is predicated on you having the data around around what that total cost of care is. Which for us is increasing in the in the percentage of our patients that we see, but it is not all of them. And we as providers we don't practice in a um we practice in a agnostic way. Your insurance status should it affect the way that I think about whether or not this intervention would be helpful to you. And so it becomes hard to then show what the return on investment is when you only have a portion of the data. And so a lot of these predictive models are really powerful. But they rely on that. Um, additional source of data that just isn't realistic. I'm trying to think about um, the people that are that we see every day. Um, so I've always joked that this isn't a sophisticated model, but I think it performed pretty darn well in finding people that our 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 colleagues would agree. You know, it is. It, it would only be a benefit to be able to engage with them upstream, um, and that we found that it won't reach out to them. Yep. Wonderful. Can you talk just a little bit about implementation? So what staff, what skills, what material support was needed to actually implement this pilot program? So just the starting points, there was a lot of light work to begin with. So things you've already mentioned, the Patient Advisory Council was huge, uh, getting their perspective on how the materials should be designed, and then they even renamed the project. So advanced care planning was too scary a term, so everything is just care planning dropping off that advance was their recommendation it was something that we chose, and so everything became care planning appointments, care planning navigators. Um, after getting their buy-in, we then needed to get the buy-in of the clinic, and so we did a couple of lunch-and-learns where we bought food for Chicken and biscuits. <laughs> I would say high-quality, warm <laughs> chicken and biscuits and thyme. Right. Yeah, spending <laughs> a couple hours in the clinic listening through to your type folks and then talking them through the whole pilot and getting their perspectives. And with a topic like this, it's very near and dear to folks. We got a lot of kind of emotional responses from staff saying, yes, I believe every patient should do this. I had an experience with my mom or my daughter. Um, things that we were very happy to hear about. I would say that that return on the chicken and letter flatters probably the the biggest, uh, I would say, hands down, because uh, it's all about culture and where does that start? It starts to second the patient walk the clinic. And so um, that breakfast um, and you know, our kind of this open forum inviting all the frontline staff and focusing on them, I think, um, was uh, critical because when the patient's checking in, when they're walking over to phlebotomy, when they're talking to financial counseling, everyone there was cued into, geez. This is important for me, in my own life. I've my own experiences. I'm totally connected to this patient. They deserve this, um, and so I, I call it like the coefficient of friction. Like every point along the implementation, there's always going to be some friction. But those people in the front line were able to, I think, mean, the lower coefficient of friction, lower it at each point to enable these uh, activities to happen. And so um, I think we just have tend to have a physician-centered approach to a lot of these things. Implementation of you know great interventions, but truly is kind of figuring out what is the great limits of culturally for practice to adopt this widely, um, and then make sure that um, it happens in the most patient-centered way possible. So, touching on that, can you talk about specifically what you were thinking in terms of true patient-centered care? I know that you had worked hard to, for example, any routine reading materials you wanted to have at a fourth-grade reading level, um, and graphics you wanted to be easily interfaceable um you mentioned the education are yes and um it, we uh, took pains uh to uh figure out what visually could represent uh, what uh what the, the i think the care planning tends to have a lot of kind of technical legalese embedded in it because it's the legal document that you know a notary site and we get kind of overwhelmed with that and also the, the technical medical stuff of do you want dialysis or not even though you have totally normal real, you get just caught up in it and so uh, it was a little bit of a like um, uh, a, a dissection of exercise of sorts where we just tried to figure out what were the kind of most critical things that needed to be discussed and then how do we represent that in words and uh, pictures um, because we uh, regardless of the uh, reading level of our patients and their health literacy ours we happen to know um, is something of particular concern um, these are all really difficult emotional and technical things to work through so how to simplify that was uh, an important part of this so making it a one a, a checklist that uh, went in order for one to five of kind of you know what are the steps that we are expected to do what is your task to do at home was a big part of it um, but then you know, just a little thing that drives you insane when you're, you know, looking at pamphlets of, like, the little cartoon should relate to the thing that you're asking. <laughs> to do. So, um, this is where we were able to use, you know, graphic designers, uh, freelance graphic designers to say, hey, like, what we're trying to say is this, what is the picture that actually makes the most sense for our patients? So, um, I think that attention to detail is not something that's traditionally done uh, in university. I think so. Uh, the part of the project that was the most patient engaging was the patient navigators. And so that was where we were really tried to be patient-centered. Of how do we design that experience? And so it was working on the scripts to find ways to bring them into the clinic. The navigators themselves had note templates that we worked with them to figure out what were the best practices, and those note templates helped guide them through very much just like a person focused thing. So asking about what brings value to their days, sort of activities do they enjoy? So hopefully the patients would then see, oh, that's, they're caring about me as a person, not just trying to get more data. Um and then the patient, to save money. Yes. <laughs> it's goal-concorded care. It's not super yeah. care necessarily. Well, I think that's a big concern to folks when, they, when this topic comes up. But when the health system is trying to initiate it, is are you guys just trying to cut down the costs? No, we're trying to make sure we're doing things that you want us to do because the default is to do the office sometimes. Um, and the patient navigators were the largest cost of the program. So we got we had a person who, fortunately, had an MSW degree um, and was working towards some up hours for her licensed medical social degree and was willing to come on. And she had excellent communication skills, had not had a lot of experience in healthcare, but really it was just that like communication part being able to sit down with the patients, and relate to them, and get their body. In. What was... How much did this... M- how over what time period was this implemented and how much did that actually cost if people want to replicate this they're going to want to know um where yeah where the dollar bills are I think so from memory we think we got grant funding in march of 2017. we had a couple months to build materials together spent maybe a hundred dollars on Graphic uh, design. <laughs> Don't forget <those> <laughs> and <laughs> the And the And then most of it was paying for the hours of the Navigator from July 2017 to March of 2018. Um, and that was $20,000 total for kind of a half time or less than half time position. And it's truly astounding. So, can you talk about for that investment what you were able to get out of it? What were the actual outcomes? Yeah. Here we So, of the panel of PCPs that we had, we used the patient identification tool and identified about 480 patients from the target. So that patient navigator, their role was really to do everything from start to finish. So we had a red cap database with all the patients uploaded to it. The patient navigator hours went to reaching out to those patients to invite them into the clinic, scheduling those appointments, and trying to make sure they lined up with PCP appointments. And then spending 30 minutes or an hour sometimes in the clinic with them, and if they needed to, hand it off, doing a warm handout
1: to to PCP after. So over that six-month six time period, we had the dedicated patient navigator, um,
0: she was able to reach out to two, reach out to about 244 patients, scheduled 140 appointments, and then um, 114 are completed. And so of those 114 visits that were completed, they were able to generate ACP notes for 112 of them. So documentation within the EMR of what does the patient care about, what are their values, and then for 103 visits, get the healthcare power attorney identified and put into the system record. Um, and for us, for me, that was one of the biggest gains. If that's now an additional 103 people that we know who we can turn to as this person can't decisions. That's a profound return on the investment. Um, that- <laughs> so the biscuit. Someone stay, you know, a biscuit, you in ICU is $10,000. And we, it was a story, I think it was about a month into the pilot. We, uh, there is a, a patient, a uh, long term male partner who we lived with, uh, was the person he chose to be a health care attorney, and two uh, sons that did not live with him who were not fully uh, aware of his partner and the role that his partner playing in his life. Um, he was doing well at home, but I you know the gentleman with an AFib, uh, heart failure, he was um, well overall, but then had a fall, uh, came to the hospital uh, with AFib with RBR, ended up going to the ICU, and at that point, uh, his health care attorney, the person who knew his wishes and his best, had been prompted to have that conversation with him just a month before, knew that, that he would not want to be intimidated, and he um, would the diet, uh, and Truly within four weeks of that encounter. Um, would uh, I guess, using kind of more simplistic terms, would I have you know, seen him and said yes? Like, I'm not surprised that he, gets the surprise question was yes. Um, but if not for this kind of operational workflow to have, you know, make sure that we had you know, closed the loop on that, mm-hmm. um, he would have had a very different outcome that uh, I, I, you know, shiver to think of, you know, by the time we get his two sons and sort of who would be you know, go be decision maker, fly them in from wherever, get them on the phone as opposed to this, you know, you know depth that I think was what From other advanced care planning studies that have shown that there is true value in, in this type of project. I think save, I think ten thousand dollars per person roughly and certainly decrease um, their number of inpatient hospital days, but I think about four days just by having gone through this program. I think I did encounter uh encounter the resilience building aspect for us as providers to see mm-hmm. that um, that happened and for our clinic team because you know it, it trickles in. you see the ADTP, the first got admitted to the hospital and then with that, you know, circuit through our clinic kind of getting this done, um, I think everyone went home quick route. That's something that I think otherwise uh, uh, it, it, the uh, ability to kind of say that you did good work that day, which in turn gives you kind of quality of the satisfaction for a job, uh, can't be um, understood. Absolutely. And the other benefits we've seen other studies is family members of patients who have had some a clinic and then go on to die. Those family members have over depression, anxiety, PTSD. I haven't seen any studies trying to quantify the indirect cost of that, but there is mm-hmm. a lost productivity and then their own medical expenses mm-hmm. that come with that. Absolutely. Are there downstream endpoints that you're collecting now from this study in terms of utilization or healthcare outcomes? Yeah, uh, so uh, at least as of uh, I would say spring of last year, we had done another data poll to kind of see what the uh, rates of deletion were for for this uh, cohort of, of patients. And the hard part about all this is that we started as a it was a, a project that was very much about where the road meets the road and how what is the operational workflow Because I think what everyone's actually desperate for to be able to do this um, in different care settings, different population, than at scale is what does to take. For the people, how does this work? How do we do this efficiently? Um, but that we did not have a kind of a matching cohort of patients, and be where we where we would land. Um, and so I think in the next iteration, where we're at now, where you know this is now going to move to our broader primary care uh, infrastructure version that is going to be presented by nurses that are tasked with kind of population health tasks. Um, building out kind of what is uh, what is a group for comparison that we. Can the impact of doing upstream advanced care planning versus uh, versus traditional care. So you highlighted, you know, this is where the rubber meets the sort of pragmatic trial design. What was the actual obstacles or resistance that you faced when you are trying to implement this advanced care plan project? I think the number one thing that I'm sure everyone who's listening to this will hear is that kind of um, this can't be more work on the provider. Right. Um, and so uh, we were. I, I think our approach to this is very much with the understanding that's right, we cannot
1: uh, burden the provider anymore
0: than the provider's already been burden. But at the same time, this is undoubtedly something that I think most providers say is they, uh, they I wish I could uh, make available to the patient because they deserve this opportunity. Um, so I think first, helping uh, a system that has been uh, MD clinician-centered, kind of rethink what does it mean to really do team-based care and to allow something like this, that is that has a you know undertone of this the therapeutic relationship, I have with the patient maybe that's been many years, that we could open it up to another person kind of helping me have that conversation. I think that was a a a big component out of this. Uh, we happen to be have innovated within a clinic that is more open to that. It you know, is a teaching clinic, um, but uh, and if that in some way had to be study that happens there to prove out the point so that it can be more accessible, more broadly. I think that would be one. I think uh, two, the, uh, we have to overcome this idea that patients don't want to do this, that um, it will be perceived negatively by them. And I think, this is, as Jared said, we're involving a patient advisory council in, um, in using patient feedback in real time to kind of course correct. Um, while wow, that affects like your methods and like kind of the mm-hmm. you know the pristine of them, uh, at the same time though it gets you towards um, getting to a product that patients want. Um, and so um, it was pretty clear that what uh, on the phone we recorded all the times that they didn't want to come in, and it wasn't a like I can't believe you're doing this, you know, want to to talk to a guy. Ick. It, it was more like, I kind of need to talk to my family. Um, can I get kind of get back to you? in mm-hmm. um, in that's something I think mean, we need to take back uh, as a health and Talk about like, what is our approach to better uh, reach out to patients and their families to help them make decisions? Because decisions don't happen in a vacuum. One person's brain; right, they're tapping throughout. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's shared decision making. Not just you and the patient, mm-hmm. but among their family members as well. And so I don't know if there are others. Well, just logistically, the biggest breakdown we had was, uh, electronic medical records are so complex. There are so many people involved in those. Um, we started to lose our documents without scanning it. And we realized that they were being uh, notarized and the plan handed off to someone and that person was supposed to be scanning them and who then had to be received somewhere else and then make sure it got the right patient in the right patient location on the chart. Um, and we, after we realized we didn't have two or three that should have been there, was trying to talk to each of those persons to figure out okay, where was the breakdown. Um, and ultimately, we had, and we started using QR codes. So putting a QR code on the charts on the scanner knew exactly which patient was associated with instead of just some handwritten should go. Up that so, yeah. I love how you highlighted that one of the true value aspects of this was the patient navigator and how um, important and vital it was to this project because you know there's now a fair wealth of data showing that patient navigators can really improve value in healthcare by being truly patient focused um, and escorting them through the process of any healthcare um, either you know emergency room admission and discharge or you know cancer patients it's for any complex um, medical uh, interaction a patient navigator can truly and increase uh, value so I think you've really highlighted that too. Um, what, um, what do you, what what is how is this next step being implemented? What are the obstacles or the benefits of implementation at a broader scale? Um, I think with any organization, especially one that isn't, um, it's relatively matrix where innovation kind of happens in the various organizations that are cobbled together. to become one, one I guess. we are one Duke, but you know, understanding that a private care system is going to work the way a private care system needs to work, and an inpatient acute uh, care setting, you know, operates a certain way, and um, I think our biggest challenge is trying to. Find what is the least common denominator of our intervention and then how it is almost like a modular to plug into what each of the other organizations need to fill their ACP gap. Um, and so um, for a primary care system that has less density of the kind of really sick, complex, chronic uh, population where social drivers are uh, you know, major contributors to utilization. Um, but they might see those folks here or far between spread over kind of uh, Wider uh, mileage of, of our of our health system um, to do this efficiently. Um, it's being coupled with uh, the annual wellness visit, which is something they can do at scale. And realizing that you know, by asking about this in the annual wellness visit, we are going to then trigger potentially um, a deeper conversation, which is the the outlet. Uh, or it's the entry point in which we can, we can go deep down in the care planning. Um, and so we uh, have an adapted Bible talk training um, that's geared towards um, nurse care managers, population health nurses, uh, and other individuals that kind of work in this care management, carry um, primary care space to prepare them for um, these conversations that are going to be triggered by the kind of population-wide intervention that happens. So that, that's one tactic. Um, Another is kind of working with uh, in the kind of transitions um, out of the hospital back into primary care or back, or let's say to a skilled nurse facility. What are the opportunities where uh, it seems kind of crazy to then be thinking advanced care planning, but there are patients where um, they haven't been touched by palliative care or they haven't had a um, uh, meaningful opportunity to go deep in ACP and try to use the data that we have to find out well. Were there, are there reflection points along the trajectory for this patient from the for that transition care perspective? And I guess the third opportunity that we talked about is, um, of course, you know, whether it's oncology patients or patients. Um, is there a way that we can use data science to look back at a cohort of patients and see what their trajectory were. What were the inflection points? And where could we have um, been better? Um, and then overlay. What something like this might look like, um, using patient navigators, um, using their inventory business and thinking is there are an additional 30 minutes that could have been spent differently. So I think those are the three kind of pathways that we are working through. But again, we've are we uh, we've shown a proof of concept, and now it's the question of how do we get skilled in a way that fits the needs of the different business units of the Yeah, I think integrating this into a clinic flow is always um, going to be. The, that's the fifth issue. Um, well, I love how this project really highlights how patient-centered care is high value care. Um, you know, when you think about healthcare innovation, you often think of kind of shiny new tech, but this was really data science and a tailored embedded EMR tool. But it was to enable a one-on-one conversation um, in, 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 in such an essential topic. And so I, I, I was so enthusiastic about the topic. Do you have any other final thoughts in terms of? I guess there are a couple of things that I think um, set us up for I guess the next phase scale. Um, one is going. Uh, we once we figure out the data side, I would call it a data, a data model uh, worked well. We we translated it into a score and epic um, just because we are an epic institution and that that allows for the different. Um, groups of providers the to then act on potentially in the future. And so going ahead and doing that, I think, really opened up the ability to have a conversation because then people could actually visualize that workflow and look like I could actually Whole report to them, like, hey, this is what your clinic look like. These are the number of people, and therefore we can start to think about what would be our resource allocation to get to this. Really so, I think that would be one practical thing of like thinking through what would, would be the next um, tool that would enable the next person to pick this up and say, I, I can do this, I can do the math of what it would look like. Um, I think that would be the main value of kind of what would it take to um, kind of pick the. I like guess taking the can further down is not the <laughs> I'm looking for. Idioms are challenging for me. <laughs> <laughs> Progressing oh, yeah. the game. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Moving, moving them all the down the field. Down the field. Yeah. Moving them the field. That's what I'm looking for. I think the only other thing being, so this project like this is tough. We had to get seed funding. This is not a reimbursable activity. Like, certainly, there are ACP codes now that uh, specific providers can use. But that's not going to fund a social worker to come in and tack that onto. The, the things. that we don't and so I think as the payment landscape shifts, and we're focusing more on that value when we have different mechanisms in place. Hopefully, that'll be an optimal systems to kind of launch and say, all right, this is where we need to put the money, not just trying to maximize the service. Absolutely. We do have a, a, a formula around kind of, let's say, if there's 10,000 patients already value-based contracts, and you know if there's activity, outreach, activity, have the A C D counter, or APP, or a non-hospital-based clinic social worker, you could recruit of that investment um but again thinking about like what is it that people need to justify the next version of this like where we uh, put our thinking um which i think i hope will result in the ability to get this fantastic well thank you so much um for talking with um, me today do you have any um uh, next work that you want to plug or any websites that you're interested in in, uh, in, in spreading to a larger. Well, I'm going to plug uh, Duke Forge, uh, which is our uh, health data science center. Uh, Duke Crucible is our data science accelerator. And uh, Jared and I are part of a deeply uh, integrated clinical and quantitative team working uh, on a machine learning model and natural language processing to kind of help find the data and clinical notes that might be relevant the those conversations. So, kind of really trying to uh, push the ACP and Serious Illness Planning Agenda. Through all the wonderful um, uh, innovations and data science that are available and are on our plate. So and taking it. machine learning down to the end? Of the yes. Oh. I love that. All right. All right, let thank me you yeah, thank, you. thank you for joining us today. And a special thank you to Dr. Azalea Kim and Dr. Jared Lowe from Duke University. For more information on their work, please visit for more Costs of Care Learning Network webinars, please visit costofcare.org backslash learning network. Listen to us on soundcloud.com at teachingvalue or follow us on Twitter at Costs of Care.